Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, though they're arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. Hey Bobo, how you doing today? Alright, how's it going, Cliff? Pretty awesome. I'm super excited. I have uh, one of our favorite Bigfooters and people in general on the line with us for today's podcast. I know who it is, and I'm pretty stoked. The guy's a legend. Absolutely. He written one of my favorite books on the subject um, because it's so out of context for the subject. But instead of just teasing and stuff like that, I want to jump right into this because I know that an hour or even two hours is going to be too short of a time to speak to this gentleman. Uh, Bobo and everybody else listening right now, please welcome Dr. Robert Pyle, as, or Bob as we call him. Bob Pyle, who wrote um, uh, Where Bigfoot Walks Beyond the uh, Dark Divide and has a new movie out. Um, where actually David Cross, you know, that dude from, what was that show? Arrested Development and a million other things. The comedian actually plays this gentleman right here, Bob Pyle. Bob, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond. Hey, thank you so much, Cliff. And, and Bobo, hi to you too. It's a pleasure. I'm, I am, uh, it's a great cliche to say one of your biggest fans, but in, in both of your cases, it's absolutely true. And it's an honor beyond honor to be on the podcast with you both. I'm speechless. Very nice of you to say, Bob. Thank you so um, much for having me. That's the thing that's been said about us ever, Cliff. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing about Bob. Whenever he says anything, it's the nicest thing anyone's ever said. It's like every word that drops from his mouth is like a honey wrapped in gold. It, well, it, I'll it, tell you this, Cliff. Life is too short for flattery. So uh, I never give false praise and I never give false hope. So don't, uh, don't expect that from me. So if you hear it from me, you can take it to the bank. Oh. Well, well, Bob, for people who don't know who you are, and because we have a lot of listeners who are kind of new to the Bigfoot field, or perhaps, you know, haven't been stewing in it for the last few decades, like Bobo and I and you have, um, uh, let's, let's start a little bit with like how you became uh, acquainted with the subject in general. Is this like a lifelong interest or did it, was it spurred by something or how did, how did, how did you become one of us? Well, it's not quite lifelong. Sure. That's a good place to start, Cliff. It's, it's not lifelong. My, I am a lifelong naturalist and observer of the natural world, although I have to tell you that I, I don't consider there to be a fine line of any kind between humans and the rest of nature. And so when I say the natural world, I include people in that, and naturally I include what, what I consider to be likely uh, our closest living relative. So they all run together. But my first attention to natural history as a boy in growing up in Colorado was seashells. Now, that, that sounds counterintuitive. You're right. It was a stupid place to be a young conchologist in Colorado. <laughs> Diminishing returns quickly set in after I spent all my allowance uh, buying seashells at the Denver Museum of Natural History. and I belonged to the Shell of the Month Club and, and so on and so forth. But there weren't many seashells around. I soon discovered there were more butterflies around. I mean, there weren't any more seashells around than there were Bigfoot in Aurora, Colorado in 19... 50s and 60s. But there were a lot of butterflies. So very early on, at the age of 11 on, I became a lepidopterist, a person who is serious in uh, his or her or their pursuit of, uh, of butterflies. And butterflies were really my big window on the world. And uh, the other part of the window on the world was an old ditch outside Colorado. And that ditch was my, my wilderness. Got out of my subdivision, out on this old tangly wet ditch and that's where the life was that's where the butterflies were and of course that's where the imagination went and i always imagined that i might see something that nobody else had seen occasionally i'd find a rare butterfly and that was pretty satisfying but later on when i went to college up in the pacific northwest i started hearing about something that really might be out there that most people had not seen and that was sasquatch bigfoot oma 
I had the most wonderful introduction to the subject. Now, mind you, prior to that, I'd read some of the uh, <clears throat> some of the early crypto books that a lot of boys read, the uh, Ivan Sanderson and and so on and so forth, and the Yeti, the early Yeti things, and so on. So I had an interest, uh, but it wasn't greater than an interest in many other things until I took three wonderful classes at the University of Washington from. <clears throat> Uh, Bill Holm. Bill was a Cherokee Norwegian dude who became a Kwakutl Indian through the Hamatsa dances and uh, his great study. He became the greatest authority on Northwest Native American art and culture anywhere, all the way from the Athabascans to the Hoopa, uh, through the Bellabellas and Bellaculas and Macaws and, and Nootkas and everybody else. He knew their art, he knew their culture, and he knew the people and taught three classes in it. One on totems and carvings and masks, one on their flat art, and one on their dance and tradition. And lucky boy, I got to take all those classes. And one of the strongest elements in my memory from them was the presence of the Bigfoot cognates in all those cultures. Tonakwa, Bukwas, merging in Bakbakwalinuxiwe, and all the others. And how powerful the Bigfoot traditions were and remain in those Native American cultures, those first people's cultures. And here was the thing that really got me, Cliff, was when Bill told us that not only did every single Northwest Indian culture have these stories and traditions, but they were considered to be part of their natural history, not necessarily restricted to their spirit world along with Seetzeutl the Sea Serpent and Thunderbird. Of course, the two run together for a lot of Native Americans, but they also have a, you know, a recognition of the animals that, that they encounter regularly in the woods. Skunk and weasel and raven and bear and orca in the water, and Bigfoot was among those. And the other thing he told me was that he did not know a single Indian in the woods or in the waters that is still living in the villages, still living in the countryside, from Alert Bay all the way to the Hoopa, who did not have a personal belief, not only that the animal lives among them, but that we, the, the whites, are foolish to even ask the question of them, does it exist as a real animal? So those things made a powerful impact on me, followed by uh, encountering Peter Byrne a few years later. Peter had an enormous impact on me. And then... Um, and then it went from there. My own studies grew out of that, and we'll get to that later, I'm sure. But that was my beginning, really, was the early crypto books, uh, followed by being up here in the Northwest, and then um, going to Bill Holmes' classes, and then on Halloween night, camping on the snows of Mount St. Helens, 10 years before the eruption in, in 1970, and, um, and hearing the cries all through the night that I believe were likely the cries of Tzelatex. Uh, so it really, it sounds like your, your interest is born in the same way of many others, kind of, just a, a, having a curiosity about the natural world combined with frequent trips to the library, I think, perhaps. That's certainly the beginning, yes. Yeah, and then um, add to that um, an, an influential person or two to kind of guide you along the way, and then finally some personal experience on the end of it all. Yeah, I expect this does pretty well mirror a lot of your guests' experience in, in the generals, if not the specifics. Yeah, but now, to, just to be clear, though, you're, you're um, expert, uh, you, are, you are an expert in butterflies and moths, right? I mean, that, that's what you have a, a doctorate in, is that correct? Correct. I'm, I'm one of the, um, I don't mean to sound like it's some kind of an elite thing, it's just another trade, but I do happen to be one of the few um, trained biologists in our field, uh, I think. I mean, there, there are a lot of good biologists. There's a heck of a lot of magnificent autodidactic uh, biologists and naturalists in uh, cryptozoology. There aren't many who have had the opportunity, the great privilege that I've had, to have a pretty rich academic background in biology. And in my case, it, uh, it's centered on ecology and ultimately on the Ecology of Rare and Endangered Species of Butterflies as my thesis project. But I've always been a general naturalist, and my training was in uh, general natural history and biology. 
and then ultimately into, uh, into butterflies and into writing. Well, that's one of the things about Bigfoot that I, I find so accommodating for um, the layperson and other scientists and just people in general is that uh, Bigfoot isn't um, it isn't uh, exclusive to one discipline. It's so multidisciplinary. Um, and one might think that, well, he's studying butterflies. What does that have to do with Sasquatches? Well, I mean, to understand butterflies, you have to understand the ecology. You have to understand seasonality of animals and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, I mean, look at me. I, I have a degree in music. What good is that? You know, like I, well, I, I incorporate that into my Bigfoot stuff when I get. I can't down. imagine many, many uh, degrees that would be more valuable than that in a field in which uh, audiology is so very important. Right, right. I mean, I, I guess I could have majored in something like you know uh, paleoanthropology, but you know, then I'd be over in you know in, in Eastern Africa somewhere digging rocks, rocks up the ground, or like, Eastern you know, Idaho. Or Eastern Idaho, that's true. <laughs> but that's you're absolutely true. right. These fields are, they run together. I mean, really, isn't that what we should be? Uh, I mean, I've been freelance for most of my life. I never I took to holding a job too well. I've been an academic. I've been a professor. I've been lots of other things. I've done a lot of teaching and lecturing, this, that, and the other. But I've never, I've never been one to uh, sit in one job for too long. So I've been freelance for a long time. And I consider myself, I like the term uh, uh, independent scholar. I like the independence of it, but I also like the whole question of scholarship, going forth in the world as a perpetual student, which is exactly what I think we do. And it's exactly what I think you two guys are, are all about, are scholars of the wilderness and its, and its inhabitants. So butterflies were just as good a portal for an interest in Bigfoot as, as I think any other subject might have been. These are animals that live by the same constraints and ecological opportunities as any other living things. And so you study those constraints and opportunities with whatever group of animals you work on, and, um, and they're applicable to others if you apply the, the broader principles. You know, for years, I went up every March until this year of the germ and gave a couple of evenings lectures or talks, conversations, really, with uh, sixth graders at an outdoor school at the CISPA Center in Washington, which is pretty cool because that's where I began my trek for crossing the Dark Divide. But those kids were hungry for this information, of course. But I wanted them to have their vegetables as well as their desserts. So I'd give them one night of butterflies and one night of Bigfoot. And then I would put them together and I'd say, now you tell me when I've taught you all these things about butterflies and their seemingly miraculous metamorphosis, you tell me that butterflies are, are not just as weird as Bigfoot. In other words, that Bigfoot isn't just as natural as butterflies. Right. And you know what? One of the things that I think I appreciate about you, Bob, is that um, you kind of, uh, I don't know if the word transcend is right. You trans, I'll say it, transcend uh, the role of scientist. Again, transcend doesn't work because really you're rolling it back to before there were scientists because you're a naturalist. And back in the 1800s, before science was a thing, really, there were naturalists studying the natural world. And eventually, the, these naturalists became specialized. And that's how science was kind of born in some ways, these various arms. But really, you're a student of the world, the natural world. And you happen to specialize, you know, in moths and butterflies. But really, you're a, a student of the natural world with a curiosity that um, will never be satisfied. And I think that is just so cool. And that's part of the reason we all, Bobo and I and everybody else listening, are interested in the Sasquatch thing because of the mystery of it all. The, the, just to know that the world is not a, 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 it's, it's not a solved puzzle. It is full of wonder and grace and beauty waiting to be discovered. And I, I think you and your writings really embody a lot of that. Oh, thank you so much. And the more you learn, just the more questions you get, how it goes, it's exponential. It is exponential, isn't it, Bobo? It just goes on and on. Every question asks more questions. Every answer asks even more questions. And of course, you're also a poet. Well, yes, but, but before, before you, you get to the poetry, let me just say what you've just said is, is beautifully put. I wish I had it all in print in front of me. I guess I'll have the recording. That, that deserves being passed on, the way you embodied all that. But I'm so glad to see you re-honor the word naturalist. Because that word sort of fell out of fashion, but you're quite right. I mean, Humboldt and uh, Asa Gray and Agassiz and, and uh, Audubon and 
all the others, right up to Darwin, the, the chief naturalist of all, they were naturalists. And yet that word fell out of favor, particularly between the wars. It was really uh, Sputnik that did it in. Used to be the American nature study movement was active all over the country. And learning something about our local flora and fauna was a regular part of elementary education in this country. And then as things began to become more specialized, more technological, um, that began to fade a little bit in favor of hard science. And then between the wars, when there was such an emphasis on armaments and uh, instruments of warfare uh, and hard science driven by that, it became even more so. And then when Sputnik went into orbit in 56, I think it was, uh, the first Russian satellite, well, that really was the nail in the coffin of natural history in the schools because we really had to catch up with the Russians on science and the space race. And so natural history went by the by in the schools until environmental education came along later. The, and by that time, they'd lost a lot of the basics of the flora and fauna because the teachers didn't know it anymore. And by the way, Cliff and Bobo, during that time, when I was at the University of Washington, as a lucky student, um, there were a lot of good naturalists left on the faculty, but they were all being um, farmed out, retired off to the pasture, and not being rehired in favor of all hard science. The hard science was good, but it was done at the expense of the naturalists. I call it the time of the purge of the naturalists. And I was one of the last students to come in to really get the advantage of all those old naturalists on campus, which let me put those great stories of Bill Holm and the Indians into the context of a lot of different kinds of plants and animals. So yes, I have been always a, a general student of, of, of natural history, and I deeply, deeply admire and am grateful for the legacy that we have, all the way back to Darwin and everybody before it. It seems like the, studying natural history is it's just a, lot, a more organic um, way to move forward, especially especially with the study of Sasquatches and other things like that. Because uh, science has a reputation, and it's certainly possibly even a deserved reputation of being a little cold, shall we say? You know, a little perhaps um, reductionist. Like uh, you know, it's um, instead of uh, figuring. Like looking at a clock, we got to take that clock apart in order to figure out how it works. Whereas if you study natural history, you see how that clock fits into its environment and what role it plays in a larger scale. Um, and, and, and I think perhaps studying things as a natural natural historian might um, serve. What am I trying to say? It might serve the subject better, especially when we're dealing with subjects like Sasquatches or people or something that is sentient um, and it certainly has emotions and fits in and it has relationships as opposed to let's, let's you know, dissect the arm to see what, how thick the tendon is. Well, we don't need one or the other, do we, uh, really? Uh, in fact, I think we do need both. Science is reductionist and that's not necessarily a bad word. We don't ever get a bridge that works or a rocket that works. That might be better. If we don't reduce the elements to their basics and understand how they work, the reduction isn't in itself a bad thing. When it becomes negative, it's when it becomes the whole picture. Yeah, a little out of balance, perhaps. The breadth and the encompassing holistic view that, that a naturalist has, which was one that the mountain man had, and it's one that the, the wise women and the, the women with the knowledge of the herbs. Add. And it's, it's the knowledge that uh, takes in the whole. That's absolutely essential, too. And so rather than setting them up against one another, which I know you're not doing, we really need both. We need a hard, uh, intelligent, skeptical, critical, and rigorous view of the natural world. And by the way, I had to come back and do some remedial on all that because I so much... Uh, rejected it <laughs> in college and went with the natural history. In order to do graduate work and to, to do a doctorate in ecology, I had to come back and re-educate myself on some of the hard stuff that I had uh, blown off. That's necessary too. But, but if you put it in the context, as you say, of the broader natural world through its, through its working parts, yes, but also through the sensations and the emotions, then you have a much more meaningful whole. 
And that's where we get to the poetry. And that's why, yes, I am a poet as well, because I feel, in fact, I think I'm, I don't mean better in the sense of quality, but I think I'm probably more naturally a poet than a scientist, actually, because uh, I find it impossible to distance my, um, my emotions and my reactions and my opinions. Fortunately, as a poet and an essayist and a novelist, I don't have to do that. On the other hand, when I put on the, the headgear of the scientist and the journalist, which I don't do very much, but I still do some science with butterflies, and I still do write some, uh, some material that I try to err on the objective side, uh, then, of course, I have to abide by the very same principles of rigor that a scientist or a journalist would have to. It, you know, Cliff, it really serves us well, and I know this would be Bobo's experience out in the woods, to have more than one arrow in our quiver. We need to be broader than narrow. We need to, be, we need to take the broad view instead of be single-minded about these things. We don't want myopia. You're a poet? Yes. I challenge you to a slam poetry competition when we're done with this interview. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'd knock me down on that. I, I've never really done slam because, uh, I don't know, slam has a competitive aspect to it that, that somehow strikes me as wrong for poetry, but I enjoy watching it, don't get me wrong, but I don't know how I do. I also don't do very well at remembering poetry. I usually have to read my own my own scripts. So. <laughs> but poetry is important to me. I've got uh, several published collections of poetry. I've just come out with a new one that's uh, entirely about the Columbia River. There are 44 poems about the Columbia River, the lower Columbia, the estuarine part, uh, published together with uh, photographs of one of my favorite photographers. And it's given me a way to look at the river that, uh, that science never has. Through the lens, the personal lens of the emotions. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida in Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Um, tell us about, uh, and again, this is one of my favorite Bigfoot books, and, and partly, partly because it's not really specifically about Bigfoot. I mean, you can read Dr. Krantz's book and get into the nitty gritty and Dr. Meldrum's book to learn about all the evidence for the subject, et cetera. Lauren Coleman's book to talk about the history and the sightings. And, but yours isn't really about that. Yours is a different take on the subject. And it was kind of, it's just refreshing to read through. Um, but, but tell us how that, how that book came about. Thank you. Thanks for those kind words. It's true. I did hope that it might be somewhat different from and therefore complementary to a number of the other uh, great Bigfoot books that I had read and been inspired and entertained and educated by. It came about in the following way. In the, in the 80s, I left my job at the Nature Conservancy, where I was the Northwest Land Steward, the manager of uh, of the Northwest uh, Nature Reserves of, of the Conservancy. Prior to that, I'd been a researcher in Papua New Guinea on the giant birdwing butterflies, which are the Bigfoot equivalent. They're the biggest species of butterflies in the world. They're about as big as a Bigfoot's foot. Uh, enormous butterflies in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And that was, a, that was my first job out of graduate school. And that was a pretty wonderful job for a young naturalist. And from that, I went to work for the Conservancy. And when I was really ready to leave that job, I wanted to go to the country and, uh, and try writing full-time, which was a crazy thing to do without uh, <laughs> any visible means of support. My wife was an artist, and we thought we'd try that, and we, we did. And uh, I've been in this house here in Grays River, Washington, this old Swedish farmhouse, ever since then, over 40 years. I have had to go out elsewhere from time to time to make a buck, and I did back then too. But part of the time I got to write, and I wrote a book called Wintergreen about, uh, about these hills here and their wildness in spite of being private timberlands that have been very heavily and very often logged. You realize a certain wildness persists, including some uh, Bigfoot stories from these hills. 
But I was in between books, and um, I was looking for my next topic. For I had actually written another book after that called The Thunder Tree about the ditch I told you about where I grew up and found nature in Colorado. Then I, then I needed a new book. And um, I was hoping to, to write a book for which I could find a little bit of a support, too, maybe some grant support to help pay some bills so I could really get into it. I had this idea and that idea. And then I'm not sure what it was. I think it was Sir Peter Scott in England, uh, son of Scott of the Antarctic. And the founder, one of the founders of the World Wildlife Fund, with which I was involved, uh, Peter Scott was very interested in uh, in Nessie. In fact, just as Grover Krantz applied a scientific name to Bigfoot, um, Gigantopithecus canadensis, Peter Scott, based on a mini submarine photograph of a seeming plesiosaur fin from Loch Ness, depths of Loch Ness, applied a scientific name to to that animal too. He called it Rhombopteryx. That was the genus. Oh, Rhombopteryx nesitris, the um, uh, diamond-finned animal of Lake Ness is what it means. Neither of those names, of course, achieved scientific acceptance because they were not accompanied by what a scientist calls a uh, type specimen to go along with the name. Nonetheless, Peter's interest in lacustrine plesiosaurs, one of the other great rich fields of cryptozoology, uh, re-enlivened my interest. And I remembered that night on Mount St. Helens at Halloween of 1970, and I remembered Peter Byrne's book. I had actually run into Peter Byrne in 1975. I was doing butterfly research, and. I went to the Dalles, Oregon, and there was a double wide, or it's actually probably just single wide trailer on the docks at the Dalles. It had a sign that said Bigfoot Information Center. So I, would, I dropped on down there and uh, met Peter for the first time. And I was impressed by his credo, which was when in doubt, throw it out. I had no idea at that time about the extremely contentious and polarized nature of the Bigfoot world and the many opinions that the uh, top people in it had of one another and so on. So I, I wasn't biased in any way. And so I actually brought him back to Yale to give a seminar. I was on the seminar committee at the forestry school, uh, School of Forestry and Environmental Studies at Yale. And I got permission. I had, to, <laughs> I had to get permission from the vice president of Yale, not even just from the dean as usual, to bring a Bigfoot speakers to campus. But they ponied up the money, and we brought Peter back to Yale, believe it or not, and he gave a, a very arresting talk. As you know, he's full of charm and a very convincing speaker. And he, uh, he had this extraordinary audience of distinguished Yale uh, primatologists and zoologists and, and archaeologists and anthropologists and many students and graduate students wrapped around his finger. And when he concluded, uh, a lot of them had come really to make fun and to just have a, a lark. And I didn't hear a single person behaving in that manner. Now, I won't say that he convinced anybody that day in such a rarefied academic environment, but he did open some minds. And that to me was extraordinarily impressive. I saw people going out of there scratching their heads thinking, well, maybe there's something to be looked at here. Just as we've seen in very recent years with the collection of uh, scientists organized around Oxford, which is extremely refreshing to see. So the act of opening a scientist's mind was very impressive to me. And so that all came back to me and I thought, huh, what if somebody were to try to write a book? First, I thought about cryptozoology, but it was too big. Then I thought about Bigfoot then, which was different from all the other Bigfoot books in that A, it wasn't being written from the standpoint of a true believer, because I was not. I was deeply interested, hopeful, um, open-minded, but I would not say a true believer. Uh, trained, after all, as a biologist and a skeptic. Uh, had not seen personal evidence at that point, except for the one night of calls. Um, but also not from the standpoint of a professional skeptic, as some of the other books were, too. Most of the books either tried to 
advocate for or advocate against, or tell a history, or like John Napier's book, to give a, a rounded picture of it, but without actually being in the field with it. Um, a scholarly approach, and that was a good book, but, uh, but not the book I wanted to write. I wanted to write a book by a naturalist, an actual biologist, uh, who could be skeptical from that standpoint, but who is also a decent woodsman, which, by the way, does not come across in the movie, quite the opposite. And, um, but also a person uh, who was a literary writer, uh, not writing journalism and not writing strictly history. I wanted to write it from the standpoint of creative writing and yet attentive to fact, which is what the essayist gets to do, both those things. And that was my approach. So I needed to have a, um, uh, some support for it. And so I applied for a, oh, a, Lind, a Lind, Lindbergh grant, which I did not get, and then some other grant, and some other grant. And then someone said, why not try for a Guggenheim? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, you know, one of the most uh, sought after and competitive grants. I'm going to apply to write about Bigfoot. And they said, well, why not try? So I did try. And damned if I didn't get the thing. I mean, you guys, that is the weirdest thing about all of this. Now, Bobo, wherever you're sitting, if our friend walked in the door right now and sat in your lap, and, and you're one of the few people I know who could actually probably support it, and started feeding you bonbons and reciting Italian poetry from the 17th century, that, I think we could agree, would be strange. <laughs> But it would be no more weird than a person getting a Guggenheim grant to write about Bigfoot. Now, would it? It just wouldn't. I think that's the weirdest thing about the whole deal. And then once I got the, the Guggenheim, therefore assuring me of a year's support for study, then I went to Houghton Mifflin, my publisher, and said, hey, look, fellas, the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation is taking this seriously. How about you too? And they did, and they gave me a book contract. So armed with both the book contract and the, and the Guggenheim, I still laugh when I think about that fact. Um, I went to work. That's how it all began. And when, what, what year was it finally published? Well, my year of Bigfoot studies was 89, 90, and, and 91. And then I wrote for a, about a year and a half or two years. and. Then it was published in 1995, and I'll never forget the uh, the formal publication day. It was it was my big Cinderella day as a as an author. Uh, the day it was published uh, in July of 1995 by Houghton Fun Grand Old American Publisher. Uh, it was also reviewed in the New York Times Review of Books, my very first book ever to be reviewed there, and it wasn't a bad review. It was a little bit snide, and, and they made it difficult to pull out a good pull line from it, but, but it was generally positive. The publisher was over the moon about it because it wasn't a, 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 a kill job. Um, that same day, I um, was doing a promo all around Seattle. I had a, a minder, you know, a driver who took me around all my interviews and... and uh, TV and radio back in newspapers back when all those things existed. And then uh, I was taken to dinner at the Alexis Hotel by the book reviewer of the Seattle Post-Intelligencer newspaper. And I had a, a wonderful hotel room. And that night, I gave a reading from it at the um, Elliott Bay Book Company, which is the premier stop on any author's book tour in the country. And it was packed with a couple hundred people. And the, um, the climax of it all was that at the very end, I noticed there were a group of Native Americans in the room. And uh, they were in the back of the room. And at the end of the reading, they all stood up together. There were, oh, 12 or 15 of them. And everybody became silent as a stone. I didn't know what was going on. And their spokesman said, We came tonight from La Push from the Quileo Reservation, to make sure that this subject was being treated with respect. And at that point, I, I was just paralyzed because about a third of the book is about Native American traditions and stories that I was given. And 
talks I had once I finally learned the politesse of speaking to the First Peoples, which I did terribly at first. And I was very, very concerned that they would respect what I wrote and that they would felt that, feel that I respected them. And then he said, and we concluded that you have treated it with respect. So I was, I was extremely relieved. Oh, yeah, sure. You can't get that back if you, if you blow oh, it. Oh, you cannot. And then he said, and we have a recording with us that we would like to play. Not to lure you people out to the reservation, but just to let you know that we live among these people and we consider it ridiculous that, that anyone should even ask whether they really exist. But we also know that they need to be treated with respect. And Rick Simonson, who the, ran the bookstore, he, had a, he produced a boombox. We threw the cassette in there and these couple hundred people were treated to an extraordinary set of recordings that in places very closely resembled what I'd heard on Mount St. Helens in 1970 and also what I heard toward the end of my time in the Dark Divide at the conclusion of my Bigfoot studies. So that was quite a, quite a conclusion, quite a publication day. And then, of course, after that, I turned into a pumpkin again. But that was my Cinderella day with the publication of that book. And so out in the woods, you know, in the Dark Divide, which and for people who are listening other parts of the world, um, is in Gifford Pinchot National Forest um, in Washington. Um, Skamania County is a lot of it in it. There's probably overlapping in Lewis County and a few other places. Um, Skookum Meadows is in the heart of it. It's, it's really in between Mount St. Helens, Mount Adams. Um, so Mount, Mount St. Helens on the west, Mount Adams on the east, and then Mount Rainier to the north. I think that's a fairly good rough estimate of its size there. Um, you were out there alone for how long? For a month. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm so glad you came around to that because the dark divide itself is the this center of our discussion. It's the place. It's all about the place. Of course, it's about the animals and the people in, in their lives. But it's about the place. And not only that, let me say this. I don't think I would have got either the grant or the book contract, and certainly not the movie, if it hadn't been for that really cool name, <laughs> The Dark Divide. How cool a name is that? Where could you get a better name for a place than that? Because, because just think, it sets up any kind of divide you might want to have. The divide between belief and non-belief, between spiritual versus physical between life and death, between the uh, supernatural and the entirely natural, uh, you know, between belief and, and, and those who are hard as bones against belief, uh, you just can't get a better name than that. Plus, it sounds good, the Dark Divide. Well, what is the Dark Divide? As you say, uh, it's this range that occurs in between uh, Patois, or Mount Adams, and Lewitt, or... Mount St. Helens, and Tahoma, or Rainier, and Mount Hood, also known as Y East, across the river to the south. They form more or less a crucifix. And the crossbar is the Dark Divide. It's a black rock, ragged, rugged, scraggly range of basalt extrusions that runs perpendicular to the main axis of the Cascades. And of course, Adams and St. Helens are offset from that main axis, uh, opposite one another, leading to all manner of wonderful Native American stories about the love affair between them and the triangle with, with Batwa, Mount Hood, and so on and so forth. Um, the Dark Divide runs between them, and along the Dark Divide runs the very old and important Indian Trail, the first great trading freeway of the people there known as, now known as Boundary Trail Number 1, the very first trail designated in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. And that runs to the center of the Dark Divide. The divide part refers to the watershed divide between the Cispus River on the north and the Lewis River on the south. And the dark part, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it, shall I give it away here, Cliff? Why not? Give it all. Well, I'll give you a little exclusive here. We'd like to think that dark referred to mystery, mystique. I don't think there's a mystical bone in 
Bigfoot's body, but I think there's plenty of mystery. It could refer to that. It could refer to dark this or dark that. But sad to say that it's just named for some dude named Dark. <laughs> Prospector by the name of John Dark. He was up in those parts. And, and uh, lots of things got named for him. Uh, the Dark Mountain, Dark Meadow, and ultimately the Dark Divide. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. It works just as well. As, as this great, evocative, mysterious name, the Dark Divide. And so that's the place I decided to go. I mean, I spent several months in deep Bigfoot study with people. I, I studied with John Green. I studied a little bit with Renata Hinden, certainly with Grover Kranz, with Peter Byrne, with, with lots of people. I went to meetings. I went to, to uh, all the archives and the transcribes, transcriptions of the Bigfoot symposia that have been held, like the great one at UBC. Um, I read everything from, uh, from, John, uh, from David Thompson in the uh, late 18th century forward, uh, all the way through Sanderson and, and, uh, and all the others writing into the 20th century. Um, I studied everything I could about Bigfoot during that year of intensive scholarship, including the tabloids. I'd go out and I'd say, this is my, my Bigfoot Swiss Army knife. This is my Guggenheim canoe rack I'm buying. And these are my research tabloids that I would buy at the supermarket. Because there's a whole chapter in the book called Bigfoot Baby Found in Watermelon as Elvis's Sneer. And it's all about the tabloids and how they've done their best to make just a silly joke out of this very, very powerful and consequential set of stories in our midst. And uh, I take that to task. So I did all that study. And then, ultimately, and this became the heart of the book, I had to take it to the forest. I had to take it to the woods, as you two always did in the program. You always went to the forest with your colleagues. And, and that's what we have to do. We have to take it out to the real land and confront our book knowledge and our experiential knowledge with um, in, in scholarship and studies with the actual facts on the ground. That's where it matters. And so I chose the area known as the Dark Divide, not only for the cool name, although, as I say, that turned out to be extremely consequential for me, but also because it's an area of deep and abiding Bigfoot lore from the Klickitats, the Yakimas, and so on. And put all that together, and including John Dark. I mean, those prospectors had, had their own Bigfoot lore, as we know from the Portland and Kelso Posse of 1923 and earlier. So, yes, I went to the Dark Divide, which at that time was considered by many to be the richest area within the epicenter of the Mount St. Helens, center of the universe for Bigfoot. And I spent a month there. And that gets back to your original question. I was out there for a month. You were hiking during that. That was a pretty contentious time, I remember. Because I was logging back then, and there was uh, a lot of the Earth First protesting, and the loggers were really getting, uh, if you were like a naturalist, you know, or environmentalist, you, you were on the wrong side of the, of the deal with those guys back then. You're quite right, Bobo. That's, that's perceptively put. I'd worked in the woods myself a little bit when I was much younger, but I've also been uh, a college conservationist, you know, and we were pretty uh, radical, and we were also pretty pretty damn self-righteous. We were also pretty stupid and naive in some ways because living in the city and, and not, not living in a timber-dependent community, of course we were um, quite sure we were right about things. And, and we were right about a lot of our conservation principles, but we were also deeply, deeply naive about um, the nature of forestry and the nature of logging communities and the culture that takes place in them. And so it wasn't until later when I actually went to forestry school, and ultimately when I came out here to live in Grays River, that I got a, a much more relevant education about the logging community. So by the time I went up to the Dark Divide, I had already written my book, Wintergreen, which is subtitled Rambles in a Ravaged Land. The Willapa Hills where I live are very heavily logged. Uh, and multiple times, because they're all private lands, no national forest, very little state land. And so that, of course, has come back to haunt 
the people of the woods as well as the woods themselves. So a lot of erosion, a lot of the salmon streams are badly silted up. And not only that, but when the big trees were gone and when the big, uh, when the older second growth was liquidated in the 90s, um, Weyerhaeuser and Crown moved on and they broke the unions and um, no longer were there good family jobs in the woods here. And it's been kind of a depressed timber economy ever since, but not because of spotted owls, but because of bad management on a long period of time. So in my book, Wintergreen, it's not an anti-logging book at all. You know, I know what my book's published on. It's published on the uh, rendered flesh of trees through the pulp mills, for God's sake. I also came out of two different forestry schools. I'm, I'm no longer naive about that. And I also live in a, a timber town where a lot of people's livelihoods really do depend on the woods. So I had a kind of an inside view by that time of the timber wars. And, and, the, and yet I understood the biology of the spotted owl and all the other uh, old growth organisms too. And of course, the spotted owl, uh, as comes out in the movie, uh, became a scapegoat for everything else and became a target of people's very, very justified frustration when the jobs ran out. And of course, the, as you say, Bobo, the antipathy toward people who look like me, you know, kind of long-haired backpackers out in the woods, they were bound to make the assumption that I was opposed to the way they made their, their lives and their livings, um, though I wasn't. And so, yeah, there were some kind of tense encounters now and again. Ultimately, I think we had some good conversations. And one of those is uh, extremely well enacted in the movie uh, with the actor Gary Farmer, who plays a a logging boss um but you're right no, those were tense times that was that was really coming out of the worst of the uh the timber wars stay tuned for more bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we'll be right back after these messages i kind of found you even though i know i know you're a great guy i like you watching the movie david cross's portrayal of you like i wanted I wanted you to like fall off a mountain. I didn't, I didn't like you, you know, in that, <laughs> the way he came across. I was like, no wonder those loggers didn't like him. That's for sure. He, he punched him out. Yeah. Let, let's talk a little bit about the movie. Cause that's, that, that's one of the most exciting things um, that's going on at this point, at least in, in big footing, I think is that uh, your book has been turned into a movie with some big names starring in it. And I think that's so cool. Um, tell us about how that came across, and then then Bobo and I can nitpick about how David Cross played you. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll join you in that. <laughs> but I'll also I'll praise him also. Oh, of course, he he did a great job, but just not the Bob that we know. Sure, that came about in a, an interesting manner. The book had been out for gosh twenty years already, and um, it had a lot of people who liked it. And uh, one of those was a filmmaker in California by the name of Tom Putnam. I didn't know him, but he got in touch with me. He'd mostly made documentaries. He made one big Hollywood film with uh, Paris Hilton, which was kind of a kick, I guess. He said she was charming, but he didn't really like the Hollywood process. So he started making uh, documentaries, and he made some extraordinary ones. Probably the best known is called Burn. It's about the Detroit Fire Department. Amazing movie. Don't know how he filmed it. He sent me a bunch of his movies, and I love them. And I said, he said, I want to make a movie based on where Bigfoot walks. And I said, really? He said, yeah, a documentary. He said, when I read the book, a friend of mine said, you're going to love the book, but don't even think about making a movie. It'd be impossible. But then he said, I've been thinking about it anyway, and I want to go ahead and try. So I said, okay, fine. So my agent uh, wasn't really interested because he was you know, independent, they didn't have a big budget, and it was a documentary. My, the film department at my agency in New York said, uh, they don't have enough money, don't worry about it. So I said, well, heck, I'll, I'll do it myself then, because nobody else is going to make a movie out of my book. So I negotiated a contract myself. Tom optioned the rights to it, and every year he'd renew the option. This went on for uh, six or eight years, and then finally he started getting some support. But not until he changed his mind from making a documentary to making it into a narrative feature film, semi-fictional. And at that point, he started getting support, especially the most important one was from a fellow named Jory Weitz, who was the main producer of the movie uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, yeah. Wonderful movie. And a, a successful independent film. 
And Jory loved Tom's script he was beginning to develop. So once he got him behind it, he started getting some other support and was able to start attracting uh, uh, money and, and a cast. And so he informed me it was going to be a, a narrative instead. And I said, well, okay, well, that means there's going to be changes. And he said, well, of course. So he started sending me this, the script, and I realized I was going to have to uh, make my peace with, uh, with some fairly significant changes from, from how it actually happened for purposes of, of the narrative. You know, you've got to have, in 90 minutes, you've got to have sufficient drama. Uh, you've got to have conflict. You've got to have room for the character to grow and, and so on. So the first thing that was hard was he wanted to change the timeline of my late wife Tia's illness with ovarian cancer and her death and move that up so that my trip into the wilderness was partly a grief trip, partly in response to my grief over Tia. Well, that wasn't the timing of how it actually happened, but it made a much more interesting and compelling story. And it was completely consistent with how my life went a little bit later. And what did I do? I went to the wilderness for my, you know, my sucker and my support. So it was in character, it was consistent, and I proved it. The uh, second big change was that he wanted, and this part may have, I don't know how this part struck you two, but I'm sure a number of our, of our Bigfoot friends found it disappointing in a way, but I hope they'll see the point of it. And that is that they changed the emphasis from being uh, Bigfoot toward, toward butterflies. Now, as you said earlier, Cliff, my book's a little bit different from a lot of the other books because it's not entirely about Bigfoot. I mean, it is about Bigfoot, but it's not trying to find Bigfoot. And uh, when I went into the Dark Divide, it's important to specify that I wasn't trying to find the animal. Obviously, I had my eyes and ears open. And it did end up with a very consequential auditory and uh, track experience for me near the very end that made all the difference. However, what I was really looking for in the Dark Divide, should have said this earlier, is was my sense of Bigfoot after my year of study. After learning so much about it from so many people and books and so on, and now finally from the wilderness itself, from the habitat, which is how a naturalist must always ultimately do it, what do I think? Not, not really about existence. That's not the main question here. I mean, Bigfoot obviously walks. Bigfoot exists. Whether or not it walks in flesh and blood, we know it exists powerfully in the culture. But that wasn't my question. My question was, what does it mean? What are the consequences? Does it have consequence for us the way it did for the Native Americans and still does? And ultimately, what does it mean for the wilderness? My point of the book ultimately, and you'll find it on page 11, is Bigfoot and the Wilderness are, in many senses, equivalent to one another. And uh, if we manage to preserve an appreciable portion of Bigfoot habitat, then along with it, we will protect everything that goes with it, including the possibility of its actual physical existence. But if we allow the land to become so tamed outright that we can't even imagine the presence of giant hairy monsters out there beyond the campfire, then we will have lost everything. We will have lost something truly profound. That was the point of the book. And ultimately, I wanted it to be the point of the movie, and Tom convinced me that, that it was. And so by shifting the balance toward butterflies, um, he was able to highlight Bigfoot in a much subtler way. Uh, think of it. If it had been really about Bigfoot in the same sense that the book was, chances are, gentlemen, that it would have been sidelined as, excuse me, yet another silly Bigfoot movie. And we all know there have been some real schlocky, stupid Bigfoot movies. There have also been some that have been perfectly entertaining and really not bad, like Harry and the Andersons. But they don't get any critical attention. They don't get any real reviews. They certainly don't get the degree of screening that we've been getting. We've been on hundreds of screens already during the plague of all things. That wouldn't have happened. Um, and yet, by changing it so that, the, that I get the Guggenheim for the butterfly, for butterfly studies, and then I go out and Bigfoot comes into the story almost tangentially. It comes in subtly. 
and yet ultimately profoundly and totally changes him, as does the whole experience, well, I think it's much more powerful that way. So I could go along with that change too. And finally, this is the one that was a little bit hard to take, and it, and it still is. I, 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 can, I, I admit it, and Bobo, you put your finger on it. It's not the Bob Pyle that I see myself as or that my nearest and dearest and people who know me see me as. Uh, David's a little bit different from that. He's dweeby. He's, he's a doofus in the woods, naive. Annoying. He's annoying. <laughs> and he's uh, kind of self-righteous with the loggers. And he's, um, he doesn't know very much. But, and I, I said to Tom, I said, Tom, is that how I am? He said, yeah, I know. But he said, you're not going to have a story unless the main character has room to grow. I mean, in every single vision quest you're ever going to find, from the Beowulf through the Odyssey, through a walk in the woods to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, the main character has to have room to grow and change. And I think David comes out at the end, a bigger person, a better person, a more open-minded person, certainly more adept in the woods than when he went in, and I hope more likable. It's been, it's, you know, I actually haven't read your book for like 15 years. And I, in my mind now, I just recently saw that Reese Witherspoon trail movie, Hiking the PCT. And I, I mix it, and I, I get these confused like images. They kind of blur together for me now. The movie, that's those two movies, like Bob Pyle and Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> you know, we've never been mistaken on the street for some reason. But when we get up in the woods, I was always getting people say, Hey, Reese, how you doing? You know? But uh, I guess that's because of all, you know, we get pretty scuzzy on the trail and you can't tell us apart. Uh, I will say, though, that uh, probably nobody's going to mistake David Cross and me for each other. But uh, we have certain things in common. I mean, he's a city boy. He, he's a cool guy. I got to go out in the field with him for one day to um, teach him how to catch butterflies, teach him how to use a butterfly net in the Columbia Gorge with the director, Tom Putnam. But we had a ball. I mean, he's extraordinarily funny. I mean, just in person. It's not like he's trying to put on a, a stand-up act all the time. He's not. He's just plain funny. And he's got quite a, quite a different take on things from, from most people. Not really a woodsman. He said in an interview I saw afterwards that he loves the outdoors. He loves wildlife. He loves nature. But he doesn't see himself as becoming a backpacker or, or ever doing anything like this again. And yet, it was an extremely demanding role. It wasn't easy at all. Uh, you know, all that uh, blood and gore and, and cuts and scratches he's got on him at the end, most of that was not makeup. Most of that was absolutely real. They were down in those cold, sharp lava caves for hours at a time, falling on the rocks. Um, he did his own stunts in every case except one, um, rolling down the, the rock slide in the cave. Somebody else did that. But um, where he falls into the stream and he's underwater and they film that, he did that twice, two takes, and he, he damn near was hypothermic when it was over. Yeah, I was going to say, because I know how long those shoots are and how long a scene takes and how many times you have to do it. That when I was watching everything going, man, David Cross, I think it was being like a wimpy city guy, but that was tough business there. I mean, like he was really doing that stuff and knowing how many hours, like to see like a five second scene might be four hours of freezing or whatever it is. You're absolutely right. It takes hours to make those scenes. Take after take after take. And he, um, he was tough. According to Tom, he, and he, <laughs> he's got a better body than me. And he's certainly a lot younger and a lot stronger. I never could have, I never could have done it. In fact, there's another actor. They were, going to hire before him and that didn't work out and i'm glad it didn't because i saw him in a movie recently he couldn't have hacked it well he did do a really good job and the film is just so well made and i, I so appreciate that it was made in the gifford pin show and the surrounding areas and the cascades and wherever else like it, up in the pacific northwest it, uh, it is a beautifully shot film that's just it's just a high quality film yeah the cinematography is wonderful isn't it it's funny that things like this would happen to me now isn't it isn't it, uh, Cliff and Bobo? I'm 73 years old. I'm an old fart. And you're supposed to start winding down, I think, at this age. Um, and physically, 
physically I'm winding down a little bit. I don't have the energy. I couldn't do uh, some of the things in the field. I couldn't do that uh, that dark divide trek uh, now uh, the way I did in 1990. That's not surprising. But I still get out there. But to have this kind of thing happening to me uh, as an artist, also still getting some biology done with butterflies and got a few butterfly projects I'm still working on, I feel incredibly privileged um, and gifted. And to have friends like you and to have people of your stature uh, paying attention to uh, some of what I'm doing is uh, a greater honor than I can possibly express. I'm, I feel like a, a very lucky boy. So I just try to navigate this plague and these times with an attitude of gratitude. And I feel like I'm having a much better plague than a lot of people are having. Happy plague to you. Yeah, happy plague to you. Let me tell you about how, how people can access this movie. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, please do. I think a lot of people are going to want to see this, especially after hearing you. We had Tom Putnam on the show a few weeks ago or whatever. But, um, you know, now that they know you better, I think that this is really going to stir up a lot of excitement about the film. Uh, the movie is called The Dark Divide. It's based on the book called Where Bigfoot Walks Crossing the Dark Divide. That book is in print right now in paperback, new paperback from Counterpoint Press. But of course, you can order it through Ama Monster or any of the usual uh, suspects. However, I recommend going to an independent bookstore if you possibly can, because they really need support during these times. So if you're anywhere near a, a community or, or downtown or Main Street bookstore, please, please get it there. Or you can go online to powells.com p-o-w-e-l-l-s.com powells.com great independent bookstore in portland that has this book in stock all the time and can easily supply it supply you with it it's cheap i think it's about 16 bucks but uh the movie itself um was released in september it's called the dark divide it's it's uh, produced by uh rei the great outdoor equipment Store has a new studio. This is their first movie called REI Studios. That's one of the major partners and uh, and with the company that Tom Putnam, the filmmaker, put together. It is an independent film, but it has had about as much exposure since it came out as just about any independent film has during these, these COVID times. It's remarkable. They managed to get it onto uh, more than 100 screens, actual cinema screens, as well as a bunch of drive-ins around the country. Uh, it's still playing on a few screens here and there, but it has gone to uh, video on demand and it is now available um, on many of the streaming services, the standard ones. It's on Prime, it's on Vudu, it's on Google Watch or whatever it's called. It's on half a dozen of them, but it's not on Netflix. It's very hard to get on Netflix, but it's on many of the others. So Check your, your service, whatever you've got. And you can also find out where it's playing by going to the website for the movie. Also at the website, you can see the trailer, which is should get an award itself. It's a wonderful trailer. And a bunch of other extras. You can have access to uh, various interviews and Zooms and things about it. Little concerts by some of the members of the uh, soundtrack. Also on the Facebook page for The Dark Divide, you can do that. If you just search, go to Facebook and search Dark Divide, you'll get to theirs. And that gives you a lot of entries to stuff about the movie. But the Dark Divide website is this, darkdividefilm.com. That's lowercase and it's all one word, darkdividefilm.com. Well, all right, Bob. It, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. It's been far too long. I just love... The work that you've done in the world and the respect you've bought, the respect that you have brought to the big galoot, you know, to our joint, our joint love here, this, this wonderful, wonderful animal and the habitat it occupies. And if we ever see a dark divide wilderness area protected, it will owe to you as well as to the movie and the book, I hope, but it's going to owe to all the people who care about this animal that we care about and the habitat that supports it. So thank you for that. And once again, I thank you at the bottom of my heart for honoring me with your attentions and your time. Thank you, Bob. The honor's all ours, honestly, Bob. And just to call you a friend is a, is a treasure in itself. 
I, I don't say that lightly. Um, you've been a model for the Bigfoot community in general, not only in just uh, uh, your work, um, your perspective on the subject, um, but your 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 uh, what's I don't know that your delicate words that 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 encapsulate not only um, the subject but the the context of the subject of the, the wilderness areas themselves and their importance has been great um, for me as an individual and I think the community in general. And I want to thank you for all the work you've done and and also thank you for coming on with with Bobo and I. Um, I cannot wait to buy you a beer and sit down and talk about stuff when we're not recording. I'll drink to that. You're welcome. And I thank you. All right, Bob. Thank you so much. You take it easy. And you. Both be safe. Both be well. Okay, Bobo. What do you think, man? How great was that? It's like, you know, it's like coming up uh, from being submerged in water for too long to have Bob on the show and just uh, hang out with him and talk with him a little bit. I'm going to be stuck in this room for a while because my head got so big with all those comments. I'm not going to get through the doorway. <laughs> he is a treasure in the community, and it was just so nice to have him on. I haven't got to talk to Bob as much as I want to. Like I've, I've said it on group talks with him, you know, and it's just always, you know, I'm, just over, I'm more just listening, you know, because he's got so much information. And, but, yeah, I'd love to be able to spend some real time with him. And if I do move up, it sounds like I might be moving close to him, so I'm sure I will at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, once this whole plague thing passes, and and if you go up to if you come up to Oregon here, we'll be sure to get together. Oh, definitely. All right, Bob, take us home, man. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in, and listening. We appreciate it. Check out the Dark Divide movie. It's a good one. Pip and I saw it. We recommend it. And till next week, keep her squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 